welcome to the second episode of Centre Circling with David Hirsch. And with Charlotte Henry. Very nice to have you back. Thank you. We want to start actually by thanking everyone who listened to last week's show and has given us really lovely feedback. We're really thrilled with the number of people that tuned in. So keep sharing it amongst friends and family and keep sending us your questions on Twitter. Now, I'm very excited today. Because we're do we're recording this on Thursday the 9th, and I I am on a football high. I I'm a Spurs fan, and I am basically ecstatic. So if you son, I haven't slept. I was on such a high, I couldn't sleep last night. Uh, and so if you uh, if you if you hear me getting s- somewhat overwrought, you know why. Absolutely, I think it's lovely that the smaller clubs are having cut runs and doing How are you? Well. How's, how's your Thursday nights yeah, we going? Got tonight, yeah. How's your Thursday nights going? Yeah, cute. I've now I've got to go to a bloody TIG meeting tonight. Well, we, we're going to come on to TIG a bit later. I don't even know if I'm a member or not, or but Is, I can't watch the match. We, we will we will talk TIG later because we, we we've got European elections to look forward to. So the latest in the long line of TIG mistakes is that they put them Barnet meeting on the same time as the Euroleague. What's it called? I don't know. You're in it. Your team's in it, not me. What's it called? I'm Europa old. League. I remember things. Europa League. Yeah. There we go. Second leg. All right. What we want to talk about first, actually, is um, the horrible. Horrible. Misogynistic abuse uh, faced by Labour MP Jess Phillips. So um, there's this UKIP candidate in the upcoming year elections. And he's been... He, he's a kind of shock jock, isn't he? He does a kind of shock jock thing on YouTube. Is that right? His name is Carl Benjamin. I think, I think that's, who, that's meant to be his vibe, yeah. Yeah. And so he's quoted as having said this really awful thing about Jess Phillips that um, I've got the quote here is I wouldn't even rape you which is nice um, really classy Jess Phillips was on the Victoria Derbyshire show I think yesterday mm. and she says this sometimes I'd rather that someone were to punch me in the face than the constant degradation that you suffer as a woman in the public eye it is constant it constantly belittles you it makes you blame yourself. It's a, a kind of um, a recognisable response and an awful response in uh, 2016. And there's a quote from Cressida Dick, the what is she, the chief She's, police yeah, officer commissioner, of the Met, yeah, the, the commissioner. commissioner of the Met, and she said to the Human Rights Select Committee yesterday in Parliament that there's been a very considerable rise in the last year of threats to MPs, particular targeting of women and ethnic minorities. Right. Uh, So, look, we we know for a fact that MPs have to take security precautions anyway, but I think it has... It's got worse, hasn't it? We've seen this. We've seen... Um, almost anyone involved in politics. Actually, we saw Laura Koonsberg have to go to Labour Party conference with, with guards. We see we saw the embarrassing sight of a Labour MP, Luciana Berger, have to go to her own party conference with bodyguards. Yep. I mean, that is utterly disgraceful. Yep. And so, look, the, the, the thing with Jess Phillips, I actually think this is classic alt-right behaviour, they they see this kind of sexism as as part of a reaction to the, the PC culture that they claim to be against, right? They they think it's all politically correct and it's gone mad, and so by being sexist and racist, the two things that often happen, they 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 see it as they're part of their counterculture, as part of the culture war. Yeah. And Jess Phillips is just the the latest victim of that, I think. It's totally classic how Trump and his supporters talk about women or how they react to uh, racist or sexist behaviour. Yeah, and look, let's not... We can't also pretend, by the way, that it's only an issue that comes from the far right. Yeah. As I said, Lucia Anaberger, Laura Koonsberg had to go to the Labour Party conference with guards. That was as a direct result of threats to them from the far left. Yeah. So so we we can't pretend that it's only coming from one side of the spectrum. Again, the horseshoe theory very much in action there is, I I would always think. And look, we've seen it 
Louise Ellman, Joan Ryan, all these women getting particular yeah. abuse. Uh, and then, of course, yes, you're right, the murder of Joe Cox, which was a, a far-right thing again. So let's just think about the 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 kind of politicisation of it. So people mm. will say that that there's some reason that Trump was able to get away with some of the misogynistic things that he said, for example, and some of the kind of veiled threats of violence and the nastiness. I mean, they weren't even that veiled, were they? The, the, that Inside Hollywood tape with, uh, what's his name, uh, Billy, whatever, the, the other presenter, um, that should have ended anyone's presidential campaign. Which one was right? that? Sorry, the, yeah. The grabber by the... Uh, okay. Yeah. Yes. That, that, that should end someone's presidential campaign. It should end someone's presidential campaign, but I even it, But wondered, it enhances it. I even wondered at the time if that had been leaked by the Trump campaign because Ooh. there's something about... I mean, I don't... I have no reason to think it was, but it could have been because I think it did him more good than harm and this is a really, A, frightening and B, kind of interesting phenomenon. The, to come back on what you said just now... Um, I think to, to kind of put it as a political argument at its strongest somehow, there's a feeling that there's a kind of political correct, correct piety, that, we're, that there are things that, that we're not allowed to say and we're not allowed to think and things that we really feel but we're not allowed to express. Because the elite don't let us. <laughs> because the elite don't let us. So it becomes a kind of piety and the kind of uh, one usual response to piety is, of course, blasphemy. So when you feel that somebody's telling you that you have to be polite to Jess Phillips, even though you really dislike her and you really dislike her politics, then the way in which you do it is to blaspheme and, and you know, to threaten, to, not to threaten to rape her, but to talk about her rape is a kind of blasphemy against political correctness. I think that's right. And... But it, it forgets the human impact, I think, as well on people. So... Jess Phillips said that she cried in the street after seeing a video by Carl Benjamin. Yep. This is a human being we're talking yep. about. I think people often forget that about MPs. But, and, you know, UKIP, I think UKIP's response is quite telling as well. Its official Twitter feed said, the year is 2019, jokes you'd hear down the pub are now worthy of police investigation. Huh which I think is quite telling. And it's very similar to the Trump locker room talk excuse for, for that video. And, I, you know, I, th I think it's fair to say, David, we've, we've been in a number of pubs during our time. <laughs> uh, I personally wouldn't want to spend time in the pub with anyone who nope. spoke and used language like that. And I don't think that's because we're sort of metropolitan liberal do-gooders. I just think because it's A, revolting, and B, revolting. I don't think I've been in many locker rooms, though. Are you kind of sporty? Uh, I, I've been sporty, but <laughs> I think girls' locker rooms are slightly different to boys' yeah. ones. Um, so, but to, to be kind of serious, so it starts with this kind of pseudo-political critique of political correctness, and it ends up, and I really recognise... Political correctness gone mad, yeah, David. Yeah. And I really recognise the idea that somebody who's some, in some sense in the public eye is not a person. Somebody becomes a kind of public property. Yeah. You can say whatever you like. I mean, even a footballer, you know, he's... We all know what people say about footballers. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you were talking to the person, you, you kind of... You would go, oh, wow, you know, Mr Mustafi, how, how exciting to meet you. And... Uh, it's just. I'd be really pleased to meet Mustafi. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm a big fan of his work at the moment. I'm sure you are, but you know what I mean. That that there's this thing about people who are somehow in the public eye, which are not treated. They're not treated as human beings. Um, I mean, there's another tweet from Jess, who says, and also it's not just a kind of innocent political critique. She says, just leaving Westminster, and yeah. a man ran down the street alongside me asking me why Carl Benjamin shouldn't be able to joke about my rape, shouting, quote, I pay your wages. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot in that incident, isn't there? Isn't there? Uh, so first of all, let's deal with the uh, I pay your wages bit, because I think that really does speak to this idea that MPs and public figures more broadly are now, uh, are now public property. They're not individuals in their own mind. We see this as well, particularly in the media, particularly with BBC figures. 
it's the license fee. I pay the license yep. fee. You're my property. There's a kind of it's, contempt, it's quite, isn't there? There's a kind of it's a contempt. It's quite uncomfortable. I think that this began to some extent with the the whole expenses scandal, and the way in which mm. I mean, which is ten years old this week. Is it ten years old this week? So look, there were issues about people, you know, claiming, and I don't want to kind of defend everything that everybody did, but one of the results of that was to say, these people are. Uh, uh, um, <laughs> crooks, right? MPs are crooks, yeah. they steal our You can money. try and dress it up nicely, but that's basically what people yeah. were saying. And part of the degradation of democratic politics and the contempt for democratic politics is to make MPs and the whole political system appear fake. And part of it is... It, interesting, um, I remember watching House of Cards, the American version, until I kind of got fed up with it in the end. But how what House of Cards did was to present a picture of politics as being only fake, only violence, only lies. Unlike and the wonderful West Wing, which... <laughs> was all our fantasies. But, uh... but the thing about that is that it wasn't, a crit- it, it wasn't a critique of politics. It wasn't politics should be this or that. It was politics is just lies. Mm. And, and It's a house of cards. Yeah, that's right. So I think that that feeds into... Um, a lot of the kind of contemporary contempt for politics and for politicians. And in the case of Jess Phillips, this feeds into an unbelievably personal and vile kind of discourse of men running, following her down the street, saying, you know, the most sexually violent things. And for them, this is just doing politics. This is just a kind of political blasphemy. and, And they have the right to do it because I pay your wages. Yep. I I also noticed this has become a bit of a characteristic around Westminster. I noticed so we know that in the lots of the Brexit debates, there's been a lot of campaigners basically parked outside Parliament for quite a significant amount of time. Yep. And uh, there there was quite a lot of videos. So we saw Anna Sue. This was a month a few months ago now. Anna Sue Breen, people she was with chased down the street again. Yes. Being shouted at by people, you know, kind of people imitating the gilets jaunes from France. Yes. We saw it happen to Owen Jones, who had quite homophobic things shouted at him down the street. Uh, and look, these people are relative, you know, pretty tough. Jess Phillips herself said, "I'm tough," but even I burst into tears. Yeah. And, you know. People like Anna Subri and Owen Jones are not whatever one thinks of their politics or whatever else. Are not shy retiring yeah. wallflowers. Well, look, being and, and tough, they're having to put up with this yeah, stuff. Being tough is not somebody who doesn't care about abuse. It's it somebody who you know endures it, takes abuse, gets upset about it, but comes back anyway. Yeah, and pe- uh, uh, and ultimately, what it does is it totally degrades public discourse. Because if you're a look, if you're a Young working class woman, someone who's come through the back, has a similar background to Jess Phillips, yep. maybe even has a similar politics to Jess Phillips. You're thinking, and maybe you're quite bad to get involved in politics. Is it worth it for you? What's the point? Yeah. Why would you want to go into life where you have to put up with this stuff? So there's another dimension too, which is that the way. So, firstly, is it true? I mean, is it true that this is much worse now than it used to be? Is it true that that's a signal of something getting worse well, in politics? So, look, I reviewed for the Times Literary Supplement Rachel Reeves's book, which is very, very good on women in Parliament. Um, and, yeah, the first women in Parliament, basically the men tried to not let them go to their seats. Yeah. The women were treated yeah. appallingly within Parliament. This is not... Women in politics have always been treated badly, yes. right? So there's always a question about whether we're talking about something because it's come into the public domain, but it always happened and it was always silenced, or whether it's really a contemporary phenomenon. Look, we can't pretend that social media is not a massive part of this because it has made us see the videos of Anna Subri and Owen Jones being chased down the street. Uh, social media has given a platform to someone like Carl Benjamin, who would be just a nobody without social media. Yep, but he's a nobody who has, has now has a platform with YouTube. Well, he's a nobody case. who has a following, a proper because serious he's been following. Because able to build it over YouTube. Yeah. And uh, so I think there is that dynamic. And look, let's be really clear about this: men in politics get abused too. Yep. David Lammy, we've seen, gets abuse. 
there are plenty of others. David Lammy gets revolting, disgusting, racist abuse held at him, and race is another issue that we, we should tackle here. Yes. But I think women are almost immediately a focus. Yes. It's men are sort of... Look, I don't want to generalise it, but there is a reaction from some men that is angry that women have any... These women have any semblance of power, I think. Uh, you know, someone like Carl Bedrin, and you know, there, there's the incel movement, which, you know, men who sort of deliberately take themselves out of dating and sexual life with women because they think women have wronged them. And what's it called? Involuntary celibate. Yeah. So it's a it's a kind of weird thing. Blaming isn't it? the women, but also yeah. So women, uh, young men who say. I can't get a girlfriend. I can't get. But it's laid. the women's fault. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Um, but it, but it's the women's fault. It's it's. Uh, it, and therefore, I'm taking yes. back the. I'm taking back control. I'm taking back control. So every bigotry, every aggression, is always portrayed as a defence. Right. <laughs> and and so in this in this uh, context, we have. I think we have this notion that that these women are kind of powerful and strong and articulate and really admirable. <clears throat> and for some men, that's really enraging. And I think it's enraging in some sense because there's a feeling that these women are kind of not available. <laughs> and, and I think there's a particular kind of anger which becomes a sort of sexualized violence, um, maybe not in deeds, but in in fantasy and in abuse. Uh, and ultimately, uh, this has just occurred to me as, as you're speaking, actually, ultimately, for, for people who think like that, it is, it is their way of re sort of regaining power. That is the only way or the ultimate way they can regain power and control over those women. Yes, that's... Yes. But if I, as in, were they to enact the sexual violence they threatened, that would be the way they could regain control over those women. Yes, or even not enacting it, but just fantasising in public about it. Yeah, because, you know, Jess Phillips, I think, has talked in the past about the security precautions she's been forced to take in her own home. Yeah. Um, other female MPs, certainly. So uh, you mentioned David Lammy and you mentioned yep. uh, Luciana Berger. And it, it seems kind of an inescapable conclusion that this somehow... And we also should bring Diane Abbott into this conversation. Absolutely. Well, who, for longer than anyone else that we have mentioned in this conversation, has had to put up with the most vile abuse. Absolutely. So, so this is about misogyny, but it's about something that happens at the intersection of misogyny and racism and anti-Semitism. And I think what I mean about that is... Well, it's a question, really. Is it just one? Is it just misogyny plus racism? Sometimes. Or is it that that specific misogynies, combined with specific racisms, create something that's altogether new and not just that plus that, but something new? Sometimes. Sometimes. Um. Uh, and yeah. So the, these are what these are the different elements at play. I think, and it has surely become... It's certainly become more prominent, and we've certainly known about it more in the last, what, two, three, four years? Yes, less. I mean, look, look. certainly it's my view that, that there's something going on in politics over the last two or three years, which is a rise of populism, a rise of contempt for democracy and the democratic culture and democratic equality, and part of that is opposition to sexism and to racism, which is kind of de... It's made unimportant. It's it's humiliated by by the word political correctness. So that I think there is something going on in the last two or three years. Yeah, I mean Nigel Farage's own whole brand for, as just one individual, and I'm I'm not trying to tie him into the kind of rape threats and things. He he actually left UKIP under Jared Batten, if one wants to give him any credit at all. But he has been for a lot of time. Uh, the absolute personification of the political correctness gone mad yep. thing. And he he appealed to people yep. through it. So Farage walks a kind of line. He makes little blasphemies against political correctness. And he provides a space for people to make bigger ones. Yes, as does... Well, President Trump probably makes bigger ones. <laughs> yeah, so the difference between them, I think, and I suspect we don't want to go too down this road as it's a bit theoretical, but I, I, I rather think that Trump doesn't know what he's doing 
and just does it anyway. Mm. Is he a natural or is he a... Uh, Whereas a, Farage is all very calculated. Ha, maybe. I would... Is my working maybe. assumption. I mean, the quote that, that was... That I saw um, Ruth Smith and yes. Dame Margaret Hodge. Another example of where that kind of misogyny yeah. and anti-Semitism has combined. Yeah. I saw them on the stage at the Jewish Labour Movement Conference a few weeks ago. I can't even say what was said against them because we've decided not to swear on this we're, podcast. We're, we're a family show. <laughs> we're a family um, show. But really sexualised, violent rhetoric was said against them. And they were, uh, I think both of them were kind of in tears, getting up on the stage in front of a relatively safe audience and telling us what had happened. Mm -hmm. And again, these are very, very tough women. But being tough doesn't mean that you don't get hurt. In fact, it means that you do get hurt, but you carry on. The one thing I would say, and we, we focused on women in the public domain here for obvious reason, but women in general have to put up with this rubbish. Yep. Um, women, you know, w walking down the street, get this stuff the whole time. Uh, and we also see... Uh, it drives me particularly mad. I notice it in, back to the public sphere with women's sport. So uh, this week, for example, the England women's football team, the Lionesses, announced their squad for the World Cup coming up. Yep. Uh, fantastic, you know, fantastic chance of winning it. Brilliant, brilliant footballers. I know it's nice Arsenal. It's actually a trophy Arsenal won as well, women's yeah. football. Are you belittling uh, that? Are you saying that the women's no, trophy just, isn't as important? Uh, no, as... I'm, ju I'm just being rude about Arsenal. <laughs> <laughs> Not about the, the highly talented women's fantastic team. Fantastic achievement. It is, but it's Arsenal, so... Yeah. Um, In fact, I have to say, <laughs> I've been going to a few women's games for some time. And I think the quality of women's football has actually just noticeably got better in the last year or two. Correct. Maybe right. that's just because Arsenal got better, I don't know. But well, Arsenal have returned to being very good, unfortunately. But <laughs> we, and we will see the increase in quality, I think, in this coming World Cup. But the point I'm making is they, the England, the FA and the England women's team constructed this whole really fantastic way of announcing the squad on social media. Started with Prince William announcing the captain, Steph Horton, and then they had different celebrities, kind of pretty safe, let's be honest, celebrities, the Ollie Merses of these world and the Ellie Gildings and whatever. But anyway, it was a really nice way. Of, and each person announced a player that was going to be in the squad. Yep. Really lovely way of doing it, and yep. it attracted a lot of attention on social media. Some of it was people saying, this is fantastic, I'm so excited for the tournament, come on England. And a lot of it was... Boring, predictable, sexist stuff. Yeah. And I'm actually, and I've noticed it a few times with women's thing. We noticed it in the reaction to Casta Semenya and all the uh, the reaction to her, the ruling about her. And I know every time I we I see about women's sport, I, you know, you put it, you click on Facebook, and they, you know, some sporting organisation or there's a story about women's sport. There's always people mocking it and belittling it, and there's always some boring person who thinks they're very original that puts that to the kitchen gif underneath. There's a comment. Ho ho. I mean, it's hysterically funny, isn't it? Is. It? it is hysterically funny, but uh, and so I think, and again, it's become except we said at the beginning of this conversation, women people would not say this to women's faces, but on social media they're kind of safe. Yeah, uh, it's a point that's been you know we're not particularly originally making that point, but it, it's very clear. Yeah, and it's is it's tiresome for women. It's I don't know how it's not tiresome for men, but it's certainly uh. tiresome for women and. It is, a, I think, a real direct response to political correctness. Yes. People think, oh, a politically correct thing to do is say how fantastic women's football is, so I'm going to make a really mocking comment about yeah. it. So people are beginning to see a little bit about why this podcast is called Centre Circling. <laughs> there is a football pun in there. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is the Centre Circling podcast, and this is also the Theresa May fan club because... Ooh. <laughs> because also... You can see it with Theresa May, can't you? I've written columns on it. Yes. I've written, I wrote a column for the Times on the the sexist abuse and just the with the unthinking sexism in the way we discuss Theresa May. And yes, and Angela Merkel and yeah. Hillary Clinton, um, whole levels of, of difficulty really, and again personal stuff. Um, you know, I'm thinking about the the way that that 
Theresa May got kind of slaughtered for dancing. And, you know, she was out on a public event. She was trying, taking part. She was had a little dance. And what do people do with women who dance? They just belittle it. I mean, yeah, you know, if David Cameron or Tony Blair had danced, they would have belittled that too. But it seems to me that there's something... There's an edge to it. There's a, yeah, an edge I mean, to it about... I didn't notice us particularly belittling Boris Johnson in the same way lumbering into a child whilst playing football. <laughs> or Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's So, yeah, and I, I just always think the kind of dismissive way the prime... Theresa May, the prime who's got, is called she... Huh, yes. You know, just the way that tone is. What was it? Nasty woman. That woman, yeah. she. That was Trump. and, and, and Yeah, the, it's the just a debate. highly, highly gendered language. Yes. Anyway, we are... Uh, it's, it's all fun and games. And no doubt we're going to see this, and a lot more of this, unfortunately, in the coming EU election campaign. Yes. Coming to that in one minute, I've just got one other example, actually. Oh, please. We remember Katie Bauman, who yes, wrote the fantastic woman. algorithm which enabled, Genius woman. which enabled scientists to take a photograph of a black hole, or at least to take a photograph of the shape of a black hole mm. because of the things that surrounded the black hole, because you can't see a black hole. And I just Googled her, and, and, and I find, you know, the most horrible misogynistic and anti-Semitic abuse. Um, she's got a, a Jewish name. The person giving calling her an oven dodger didn't know if she was Jewish or not, but, you know... Oh, that's nice. Very nice. Um, and again, it seemed that in the first place she didn't quite get the kind of public eye that one might have expected because the story got a big public eye. As it should. But not the person or one of the key people who made it happen. And then she gets subjected to all this stuff. Um, anyway, I'm sure... I'm sure she's... Um, I was going to say I'm sure she can handle it and she's doing really well, but well, I, can't, she I shouldn't to. even say that, should I? You know. Well, she, I think this is what women find it. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, um, but no, you're absolutely right. As soon as pictures and her story started being told... Yeah. To she was barraged. With so on the one hand, her story wasn't told, and then feminists said, why isn't her story being told? And when it was? And then when it was, it's political correctness gone mad, and why are they going on about her giving her special treatment because she's a woman? And she didn't get special treatment because she's a woman. In fact, probably, she didn't get talked about because she was a woman. And then when she did, she got subjected to lovely and uh, sexist and, like you say, slightly anti-Semitic abuse as well. All right. Actually, I don't know why I'm saying slightly. I mean, because someone or not. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, as I say, I think, unfortunately, we're going to see more of this in the forthcoming EU elections, which were, it was confirmed this week, uh, Britain is going to have to stand in. Yes. Now, so... I, you're going to disagree with me, so I'm going to give my opinion, I'm going to let you go, because you're definitely going to tell me I'm wrong. And that's OK. That's what this is for. I'm saying nothing. So, I... Uh, so, as a Remainer... I am delighted we're standing in the e holding the EU elections because it means we're still in the EU. Yep. If I had voted Brexit, yep. I would be furious yep. that three years after that election, after I cast that vote, I'm having to vote for people to the institution that I thought I was leaving. Yep. So I get the anger. I I don't agree with it particularly. I'm kind of relieved, but. I don't even say I have sympathy for it because I don't. Yeah. I, but I, I do understand where it's coming from, and, I, and I'm deeply concerned about what we're going to see in this forthcoming election campaign. You know, we've already seen people like Tommy Robinson say, "I'm going to stand." Yeah, is he not standing actually? I'm not sure, but I, I certainly that his initial reaction was, yeah. "I'm going to stand." Obviously, Carl Benjamin, who we've just spoken about in the previous section, I believe is a UKIP candidate in those elections, or was at the time we were recording this podcast. So the, it's the perfect opportunity for populist rage. And we've seen the Brexit Party soaring. If you want to chuck them in as part of the populist response as well. Yep. Uh, I think it's very concerning. So, you were wrong. I'm not going to disagree with you. In oh, fact, right. I'm going to agree with you even more strongly than you agreed with yourself. OK. And what I agree with is that people are furious that Britain is participating in this election. Mm -hmm. people Some are, people. Yeah. Um, people don't understand why they voted to leave the European Union and Britain hasn't left. And, and I think 
people are furious and I think they're kind of right to be furious, but who are they who should they be furious with? That's my question. And the answer is Well, the answer is that the referendum itself was um, fatally flawed in a whole number of ways. There was no proper risk assessment of what leaving the European Union would mean. There was no proper white paper. There was no proper plan. There was no explicit uh, analysis of how Britain would leave, of what it would mean, of how we would deal with the fallout. Uh, there was nothing. People just said, this is going to be a cakewalk. We're going to get our freedom back. Everything's going to be fine. Vote for it. And and it'll be easy. Who was it? Uh, Liam Fox said this is going to be the easiest trade deal in the history of trade deals. And I think people are furious because what they're discovering is that Brexit, as voted for, is not implementable. <laughs> and they're furious because it's not being implemented. And Parliament has looked at this really... The government has looked at it really carefully. The government has gone to, to, to the EU and, to, and looked at everything that it needs to look at. And government has said, we need to do this deal. <laughs> we need to be part of, of the... Uh, we need Ireland is a huge problem, right? I think that Britain doesn't have the right, never had the right, since the signing of the Belfast Agreement, to pull Northern Ireland out of the European Union. Britain signed away that right. Britain signed away the right... The, good by the Belfast Agreement, by which you mean the Good Friday yeah. Agreement. Yeah. Britain signed away the right to dictate on its own what would happen in Northern Ireland. And that's why this thing about the backstop is so important. And how was that not taken seriously before the referendum? What happened in government that nobody said, hang on, we don't have the right to pull Northern Ireland out of the European Union in a straightforward way because of the Belfast Agreement. And if we try to do that, we're going to have to have a negotiation with the, with the European Union and and they're rightly going to have a problem with it. And by the way, Brexit really, really impacts seriously on the Republic of Ireland. Right. But we, we, we have, in the years since the vote, done that debate. I don't disagree with anything you said, but we've done that debate. What I think people are frustrated with... I'm not sure we have done it. I don't think people understand the issue oh, about we, we, we Oh, they might not understand it, but we certainly... For weeks and weeks and weeks, I heard nothing else apart from the backstop. But you have big Brexit politicians saying this has been got up, this is not a real oh, yeah. issue, this well, is not a real problem. That I would uh, I would almost put in the category of fake news, because it, it is a real problem. Yeah. It's, it's post-truth thinking to pretend that um, Northern Ireland is not an issue, the Irish border is not an issue, it quite clearly is. There was a lovely piece of briefing from one of the government ministers. I, I haven't got the quote in front of me, but he was saying that in this negotiation with the Labour front bench, that Labour had been on a very fast learning curve because Labour was saying, oh, we just need to renegotiate and have a better deal. And what they, Labour has been learning in this negotiation is that the UK government doesn't have a threat point in this negotiation, doesn't have any power in this negotiation, and Labour have been learning <laughs> that actually... Um, so, for example, let me give you an example. There was this whole thing about having to agree the divorce agreement before having proper trade talks. You and can't sign a trade deal till the withdrawal agreement is And passed. one would say that's madness. You know, and I've heard, again, Liam Fox and, and David Davis, they say it was madness to agree to do the divorce deal, to pay the bill, to pay what Britain owes, to do the backstop agreement, to make a deal on air, air travel and trade, not trade... Um, nuclear material, all these yeah. little deals, it was madness to do that before we knew what the final deal was. Yeah. And that's... Yeah. And, again, people are angry about that. But what, what they don't understand is that Britain tried. <laughs> Britain tried to go to the EU and said, no, we don't want to talk about that first. We want to talk about the whole thing. And the EU said, no. <laughs> the EU said, no, we're not going to talk to you until you assure us about the rights of EU citizens in Britain, until you assure us about the rights of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, until you say you're going to pay the bill. We're not talking. In, in the words of the late great Amy Winehouse, they tried to do a trade deal and the EU said no, no, no. <laughs> well, that's one of the misapprehensions. But... That, that people think Britain have power in this negotiation and Britain actually cho chose to give up its power by saying... Britain's going to leave the European Union, whatever happens. And Britain 
doesn't have... And, and there are all sorts of, again, fake news, fundamentally, saying, well, the Germans need us, the Germans need to, to sell their cars to us and all of this. And so when people are furious that we haven't left yet, it's, I think, because they still don't have a clear idea. They just say, well, leave. Let's just leave. And just... The th- uh, let me just say one thing about just leave <laughs> and no deal, is that if we leave without a deal what would happen almost immediately is there'll be crisis. European Union will say, you have to pay your bill, (laughs) you have to guarantee Ireland. And Britain will say, no, we've left. And very quickly, Britain will be in crisis. And Britain will be going to the EU and saying, look, we need to talk about air traffic, we need to talk about medical stuff. And the the EU will say, of course, sign the deal. Deal. (laughs) First, you pay your bill. So, so what I'm saying is that no deal leads yeah, well, very, I think very open quickly. Sky, has Open Skies been dealt with? I don't think anything's been dealt with uh, until, until... I think they were... I might, I'm prepared to be corrected. You feel free to tweet me and David at Charlotte Henry and at David Hirsch yeah. uh, to tell me if I'm wrong. I thought they had come to some agreement over open skies just because the consequences are so catastrophic. Maybe, but, but uh, you know, in a situation in which Britain just breaks all its agreements with the EU and walks away, I don't think we can rely on anything. And I think it's a new political world. Mm. And so no deal leads... It, it's like people say we're driving off a cliff. We're not driving off a cliff. We're just going to drive onto a rock and we're, our wheels are going to be spinning and we're not going to go anywhere. And we're going to go back to the EU and say, now we have to make a deal on trade. And the EU will say, sure, but sign the, sign the divorce agreement first. So, so no deal leads straight back to deal. <laughs> and deal leads straight back to no deal. How? Because if this deal is signed, then the fantasies about Britain being a supplicant to Europe and a colony and not having any power will become true. <laughs> so deal leads to no deal, and no deal leads back to deal. And I... OK... But the, prob- the the issue is, though, that, you you know, while you've articulated that very strongly and very articulately, no-one is making that point in the EU campaigns. So the Lib Dems, on the day we've recorded this, um, have released their manifesto uh, for the EU elections called Bollocks to Brexit. That is the front page of their manifesto, official manifesto. It? Yeah. Well, if they've called it that, then we're allowed to say that. Well, that is their official title on the front. There's Vince Cable standing with a picture with this document saying that. Who thought Vince Cable was that naughty? Well, you know, him and his erotic spresms or whatever he has. <laughs> I've forgotten that. Yeah. Um, but so the Lib Dems actually have benefited, and we saw this in the local elections last week, which, when, which we discussed. Um, they've benefited, at least in part, by just being unashamedly remained. Liberal Democrats, we are remain. If you vote Liberal Democrats, the more times you vote for Liberal Democrats, yeah. the le- the more opposition to Brexit you are showing. Yep. TIG, Change UK, whatever they're called at the time we're recording this, yep. have managed to make a total mess of occupying that space, in my opinion. I don't understand the branding. <laughs> I What's do- wrong with the brand? Everybody's going on about the picture, the logo. What's wrong with it? What is it? I don't know. Exactly. Um, they don't understand the. I don't understand the branding. I don't understand the policy platform. I don't understand the cap. I've not seen a punchy campaign slogan. I still don't see Nick Bowles join. Like, what are you doing? Me? What are you doing? What are, <laughs> what are they, they doing? Do- I don't know. I, I don't I, know. I, I, I was really excited when I first saw Tig uh, appear. Yes. When you saw Chikumana and comrades walk out together. Yes, and not uh, only comrades, but people from the Tory party, which and the, was well, really important. Well, then you had maybe Joan you meant, Ryan. Maybe you meant Anna Sabri was a comrade. Uh, no, and then, but then you had the Tories, yes. which kept on the momentum. Yes, which is one but, thing but, the SDP never had. Correct. Um, and, you know, you now got Heidi Allen as the leader. Yes. For, but... And they've got some quite interesting characters as um, uh, as candidates, but I just do not see what tangible thing they are offering. I don't know. You know, they have as many MPs as the Lib Dems. Yeah, I mean the big look, the big picture is that the the Labour Party has been taken over by hard populists. Correct and. Uh, there are lots and lots of MPs and lots and lots of Labour people who are not happy about that. 
the Tory party has been taken over, to an extent anyway, by hard populists, ERG, people like Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson, and there are huge numbers of Tory MPs and Tory people who are not happy about that. And, and then you have the Brexit party, which is unashamedly a populist party. Uh, Brexit party seems to be doing really, really well. Right. Is it? I mean, is it just because we're on the outside? Maybe the people in... It's not, is it? It seems to be, again, because, you know, there is clear branding. You tell... I know what the Brexit party stands for. This goes back to the point you made on last week's show. You said, why did the Lib Dems, TIG, whatever else, not yeah. come together and put Remain on the ballot paper? Yeah. You'd have had Brexit and Remain on the ballot paper. Yeah. They could have said, just for this election, we're going to make a party, and it's going to be called Remain, and after, let's, you know, after that, we'll see. I don't know. They said that there were technical issues. TIG was kind of interested in creating its own brand, but it hasn't really done that. We branding don't... has been shocking. I mean, I mean, even the political it, branding, it... we don't know really... No, I'm talking about the political... It's, it's all... It's politics by committee, yeah. which is great, and it's democratic, and, you know, that is what... That is worth advocating, but at some point someone has to make a decision and you have to have... Uh, I think they're discovering that the new politics, without playing some of the old political games, is quite difficult, playing by the same old political rules, actually, yeah. is quite difficult. Well, I suspect they're playing too much by the old political rules. Oh, OK. I, I suspect... On. I don't know. I suspect that there's quite a lot of inside thinking, actually. I don't know. I think there is a realignment. I think there will emerge a movement in this country which is ready to defend democracy, the democratic state, democratic culture, democratic cooperation with other countries, uh, which is ready to, to really defend itself against the likes of Farage and Johnson and Corbyn, who I see as a real genuine threat. I think there must emerge such a movement. I'm sure TIG is part of that, will be part of that. But so far, it hasn't really said clearly that that's what it's about. And in a way, the whole... Did we talk about this last week? I don't remember. The whole change branding, I think, is problematic. Because, yeah, no, we did. Uh, because, and yeah. you know, it's, it's Farage and Corbyn and Johnson who come along and say, everything must change. Every, tear it all down. Oh, yeah. It's all fake. It's all corrupt. And we need to build again from year zero. And... and that isn't Ch what is, is required as, no, a, as an opposition Change to in 2019 is kind of the equivalent of hope was for Obama in 2008. <laughs> well, it worked for Obama in 2008. Yeah, but we're because we're a decade on now. And I, I think, it, you know, the conversation has changed. And I don't think... Uh, look, we'll, we will see in a few weeks' time how these new parties in particular do. Yeah. If I was the established parties... But we, sorry, if I was the main two parties, but the Tories and Labour, I'd be very worried. Absolutely. Because you're about to get another kicking. Yep. If I were Change UK, I'd be very worried because this is it. This is what you exist for. And if you can't make a real mark yeah. on, on the electoral spectrum, if you can't boast, uh, I don't know, a significant number of MPs, or MEPs, if you can't poll at a significant number, the project is dead on arrival almost. And if you're the Lib Dems, you don't quite have a free ride because you've still got to back up, but you, ha you have to back up what you did in the local elections. Because if they get hammered as well, people say, well... People don't want Brexit. They were voting in local elections, and in the uh, election where the EU is completely relevant, people didn't vote for the Remain party. Yeah. So the change logo, or the change idea, mm. implies that the reason we're in this mess isn't because of the rise of populist politics, but the reason we're in this mess is because of Blair and Cameron, who who invited this rise of populist politics. The reason we're in this mess is because of things that were going on before in a kind of stable way and, and, and we need to change it all. And, and the problem with... I think that's a much too kind of quick shift. Gavin Esler, one of the TIG mm. candidates... Former he's, BBC uh, journalist. That's right. He said um, that we need... With the EU, we need to remain and reform. <laughs> and I thought... As an emphasis, that was really problematic too. Let me try and explain what I'm talking about. 
Um, I think Remain and Reform implies that what Nigel Farage says is basically right, <laughs> that the, the EU is this terrible organisation which needs a sort of massive reform. Look, any institution could be made better and the EU is no different. But he doesn't say what reform. And so he just kind of gives the ground to Farage in the same way that saying we're for change and the reason we're in this mess is because of Blair and Cameron. The reason we're in this mess is because Corbyn and Farage have the kind of popular critique of what went before. Mm. They mobilise the left behinds, they mobilise the angry people, and I don't want to give them that much. I don't think Trump and Corbyn and Farage are in any sense rational responses to Obama, Cameron and Blair. So, so the idea that we must remain and reform on the idea that what we need is change is already to give too much to the populists, is to say, yeah, the populists are kind of right about what went before, but we need to do something different. And, of course, that's what the right populists and the left populists say about each other. Yeah, well, again, that's why I always say they're far more similar than either of them would like to admit. Yeah, we've got the quote from Owen Jones today. Oh, yeah. It's very funny, actually. Owen Jones says this. Today's buoyant Brexit party is the most striking manifestation of insurgency. The mass rallies bubbling with energy, echoing from the right, the Corbyn mass rallies of 2017 election. <laughs> so, so Jones says, gosh, Farage is doing what we did. It's the same energy, the same insurgency. And I think he's right. And I think he's a r right in, in a much more serious way than he even knows. Yeah, so hearing that quote, look, I make a habit of of trying not to agree with Owen Jones. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I think he doesn't agree with this either. He doesn't agree that Corbyn and Farage are similar. But his, but yes, that, 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 so that was the point I was going to make. Does he, does he quite understand what he's... Is he making the point we think he is making? No. Okay. What he's saying is that Farage has keyed into this... this anger with the status quo, let's use that word, the status quo or the political class or any of these problematic kind of words which... The elite. The elite, neoliberalism, um, the European Union, whatever. He says, Owen Jones seems to say that Farage has keyed into the anger with that. With which is true. And that what Corbyn needs to do is to key into the same anger, the same critique, the same contempt. Which he does. But to do it better. I would argue that Jeremy Corbyn has done that. If you look at... And I write about this in, in my book, which, by the way, I finished this week. <laughs> Fantastic. It, I, so, yes, it, that's coming out next month. Brilliant. Yay! But I, I, I talk about this in my book, how actually they use very similar language the way they attack the media. Yes. And so when you pick up that Owens Jones quote, that's what I hear and understand it to mean. Yes. I'm not sure he does. Uh, absolutely he doesn't. But the story, you can look at the story quite quite a so, long story. The, the, the Scotland referendum is 2015, is it? I don't know, it feels like a lifetime I ago. I think the Scotland referendum is summer of 2015 and there's this nascent populist upsurge in Scotland which was just defeated. And... Oh, 2014. And I, I, is it 2014? So really a lifetime ago. OK. And I, I, I wouldn't say it was just a feature. I would say that was a pretty comprehensive result. What was it, four, 45 to 55? Yeah, it? it was pretty... It was... Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. And it was... Uh, so it was two, two million-odd votes f against independence and 1.6 in favour. Right. But I'm... So I'm thinking of that as a kind of dress rehearsal, right? Now, I agree with now, that. Now, ironically... Um, one of the results of that referendum has been a much more healthy politics in Scotland, I think. But we can come back to that I'm later. I'm not sure people in Scotland would agree with that, actually. All right. We, we can discuss that later. But let me kind of make my big, mm. my big painting here. 2014 was the dress rehearsal. 2016 was, was the Scotland referendum in Britain, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the Brexit referendum. And people went out. They were angry. They wanted to protest. Um, I mean, I think it's probably true that many people who voted Brexit just thought they were going to lose anyway and they wanted to make a kind of, you know... We're not swearing, are we? <laughs> they, yeah, a protest vote. Yes, yeah, so they we'll two fingers up. So 2017, Theresa May doesn't notice that these have been kind of populist insurgencies and Theresa May says, all right, 
That's what the people want. We promised to give it to them. We'll give it to them. But to give it to you... Because she's a technocrat. She does the delivery. Right, she's a Tory. To give it to you, what we need is a big majority to deliver strong and, strong and stable Brexit. <laughs> we're going to deliver Brexit, but we're going to try and rid it of its harm, and we're going to deliver it nicely. And the people laughed at her, and they said... it doesn't exist. They said, we don't want... Str- if we wanted strong and stable, we would not have voted for Brexit. And what did they do? They voted for Corbyn instead. 2017. 2016... more people voted for Theresa May. Of course it's complicated. Um, Many people who voted in 2016 to show their anger with the so-called status quo voted Brexit in 2016, then voted Corbyn in 2017. So instead of giving... Theresa May took it at face value and she said, I'm going to deliver Brexit. But people said, don't be ridiculous. We don't want that. We want to kick you. And they kicked her by by voting for Corbyn. And now we see a situation in which she can't bring her withdrawal agreement back to Parliament again. That's been the talk this week that it was going to come back or maybe not come back. It's a mess. She can't do it. Um, We see Jeremy Corbyn trying to look both ways still on Brexit and he's going to get caught out, I think, in the EU referendum because as this campaign has launched and we've had it officially confirmed that we're standing in those elections, people are now asking him to... Nail his colours to the mast. Yeah. But that was the, that was the conclusion of the Owen Jones piece, by the way. He goes on, there are those who wish Labour to adopt a bold Remain position, but that would mean abandoning not just radical leftism, but potentially millions of its Leave voters and its hope for forming a government. So jo- Owen Jones says, we just want Brexit to go away. Yeah. We want to talk about austerity and socialism and the NHS mm. and the, for the many, not the few, and how evil and wicked the Tories are. By the way, we didn't get onto that when we were talking about Jess, Jess uh, Phillips earlier on, that populism constructs people who disagree with it as bad. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it's good versus bad. Look, this, this election campaign is going to play out, and you can join us here on Centre Circling as it does, because we will be keeping a very close eye on it and the debates that emerge. But for now... I'm going to say goodbye to David Hirsch. Goodbye. You know, you're supposed to say goodbye from David Hirsch. I'm going to say goodbye from David (laughs) Hirsch and to David Hirsch. (laughs) Um, And goodbye... uh, Now I've forgotten which way around it is. Goodbye from from Charlotte Henry. Um, Very excited to have done the second Centre Circling podcast. Really hope that people uh, listen to it, download it, get in the habit of hanging out with us every weekend. Um, you can contact us uh, yes. through our... I think the, we thought the best way to, for people to contact us is on Twitter through our own Twitter handles. If you if you look for David Hirsch or uh, what's your At Twitter Charlotte, handle? Charlotte A. Henry, all so one you just word. Put our, uh, just put our names into Twitter and you'll We're find there. it. Uh, also Facebook. So, yes, thank you very much for joining us. Share and we will see you next week. Bye.